Hello, this is The Spectator Podcast with me, Lara Prendergast. But before we launch into the main event, there's something of a change happening to our channel. You may have noticed that it has a different logo and a different name. Spectator Radio is the all-new collective channel for The Spectator's best audio offerings, and it's going to be updated daily. So you won't only hear from Isabel Hardman and myself, but also from Freddie Gray on American politics, Sam Leith on literature, Damien Thompson on religion, and many others. So if you love The Spectator podcast, why not give all of our other podcasts a go? But if you'd like to just stick with The Spectator podcast, that's fine. It's moving home to a new channel. Just search for The Spectator podcast on the iTunes store. Hello and welcome to The Spectator podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. So, as we head into Tory party conference, Theresa May has never looked so alone. So says James Forsyth in this week's issue. We talked to Ian Duncan-Smith and James about a Prime Minister abandoned. And while chaos reigns in the Tory party, Labour is gearing up for government, led by a pragmatic but radical shadow Chancellor. But just who is John McDonnell and what does he believe in? And last, why is Tesco's new discount retailer quite so Brexity? So first, it's the Prime Minister's 62nd birthday this week and she'll be celebrating it at Tory party conference with thousands of party members and listening to a speech by Philip Hammond. But, as James says in this week's issue, Theresa May has never seemed quite so alone. At home, neither the Brexiteers or Remainers seem to have much sympathy for her while she tries to push her vision of Brexit. And on the continent, she's routinely humiliated by the leaders and negotiators. And what's more, while Brexit rumbles on, the Tories' domestic agenda has been hopelessly weak. So, what can she now do? And is the party completely without direction? Fraser Nelson, the editor of The Spectator, talks to James Forsyth, our political editor, and Ian Duncan-Smith, the former leader of the Tory party, about a Prime Minister abandoned. James, in your cover piece this week, the headline is all by herself. You say that Theresa May is running out of allies. This is a rather depressing message for the Conservatives. We've just had a Labour conference which has been brimming with ideas. I mean, you might argue all of them are terrifyingly bad ideas, but ideas nonetheless, a message nonetheless. What is the Tory message as they head into this conference with a leader who is as isolated as, as you describe? I mean, the Tory conference is inevitably going to be dominated by Brexit. It is the discussion point of the conference. It is the big debate in the Tory party is about Brexit. And I think there is a problem, though, which is that the Tories need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. They need to have a domestic agenda at the same time as they're doing Brexit. And I think there is a kind of weird thing, which is they are just missing open goals at the moment because of this. So, for example, at Labour conference... You had Angela Rayner talking about curbing the freedoms of academies and free schools. Mm. Academies and free schools have done a huge amount to drive up school standards. Why isn't the education secretary out there making the argument, saying to parents, if you like how much better your kid's school is than it was 10 years ago, that is because of these freedoms. Those are all under threat from Labour. You had one of Labour's DWP team talking about removing all benefit sanctions, right? Now, you can have questions about how the benefit sanctions regime work, but the idea that the average voter think there should be no sanctions at all for missing job interview after job interview, you know, that is nonsense. But the Tories aren't making these arguments. And I think this is the problem, which is that the Tory party is having this massive internal row over Brexit. And at the same time, it isn't pursuing a domestic agenda. And when it does 
dip its toes into the water of domestic agenda, it's incredibly timid. You had Theresa May talking about building an extra couple of thousand houses, right? Mm. Of 4,000 houses, I think. That isn't going to make any kind of big difference. Sort of thing that one builder would yeah. be expected to do if he is ambitious enough. Yeah, exactly. It isn't going to make any big difference. And I think this is the problem, which is, I don't think, as David Lington says in his interview, I don't think the Theresa party is going to get a Brexit deal that is going to infuse people. Yeah. It, it might get a Brexit deal that is acceptable to the public, but you're not, the Tory party is not going to be able to go to the election in 2022 and say, give us a fourth term because we've negotiated this great Brexit right, deal. Because nobody's going to be that enthusiastic about it. Therefore, there's not much political capital to be gained yeah. even from a successful yeah. deal. And also, you know, you say, what, what did the education secretary say? I've got a question for our listeners here. Who is the education secretary? Now, we'll tell you. We'll tell you at the end. I, I'm sure that our other guest doesn't know who the education secretary yes, is. But <laughs> Ian Duncan Smith, nobody was any under any doubt who was in charge of welfare under David Cameron. It seemed to be a different model, didn't it? There seemed to be more cabinet members out there fighting. You were all drawing fire, but there was you, there was Michael Gove, there was a whole bunch of people, including David Cameron and George Osborne. It seems to be that the Conservatives are just firing on fewer cylinders. Well, I think the difference was we had enthusiasm for what we were doing and we had ideas. I mean, when I was at Welfare, we were driven by we had to change the whole system so that it more supported people. I believe that process has resulted massively in fewer workless families than ever before, people more in work, people with the choices that exist uh, that help with poverty. And the same with Michael when he was doing education, you know, this radical agenda to get schools back the power, to give parents, therefore, through those schools, that greater choice. And as was being said earlier by James, that, that opportunity that comes that improves their standards. So we had agendas of change that were about life change. I think what has happened, and it, you can argue it's hugely down to the fact that Brexit has now occupied the space that allows us to talk about this. We, it's a partial answer. Well, the Brexit has lobotomized the Conservative Essentially party. what's happened is we've been sucked into this vortex of debate about Brexit. I have one point to make about Brexit, which is the Conservative Party will be judged on Brexit in the simple fact we have to get Brexit delivered and out. But I don't say it's a positive that wins us the election. What it does is it doesn't make us lose the election. In other words, you get the UK out so the people that voted for that can go, right, OK, job done. That allows us then the space to get after the domestic agenda, which is critical as soon as possible, i.e., you know, really now, onto what do we believe in and what is the problem with Labour and therefore what are our choices that we're going to make. And I think we should be right now beginning that process of the counterattack on domestic agendas. And Labour's got away with it. I mean, they had their mess at the conference over Brexit, but they kind of brushed that to one side and he comes up and makes a speech all about domestic issues and it's as though there wasn't a problem on Brexit at all for them. Now, we have to kind of sing a message about, yes, Brexit, we will get this done, but we have to get back onto the domestic agenda. You know, housing, for example, we are great believers in giving people opportunity through housing. So why aren't we reinvigorating the whole idea of this great stock of housing that sits there being put back into the hands of those who live there to take responsibility, give them an opportunity to step up on the ladder? Little simple things that allow them to say, oh, they're on my side. Exactly. So it's when you say for the many, it's not bringing power back to government. It's about putting power out to people, not authorities, not local authorities. But, but you know, I imagine we're going to have no shortage of speeches who will use language similar to yours, where for the many, we're building this, we're doing hmm. that. Look at, I mean, and there are so many statistics out there 
that I could quote it, you could quote yeah. saying, look at the number of people who are now used to be unemployment, but now they're not. Look at the number of children and workless. You know, but all these, but these statistics I put to you in isolation don't mean anything without the ability to tell a story. I so what you've got is a government that actually got the results, you which it didn't have in 2010, but it's lost a story which it did have in 2010. I agree with you completely. In fact, I was in, and I'm not going to say who, with a particular minister today, and I said, we have lost the narrative. Without a story to tell, without the narrative about who we are, what the country looks like, what it could look like, we don't have then the slot to put the figures into. And my point is, our narrative has gone begging in the last year or two. Yes, partly because of Brexit, but more importantly because we ourselves have not had, again, the regenerated debate about what are Conservatives in this new century, how are we going to deliver, that allows us to say... People themselves are empowered to make the decisions. People take control of their lives and people can make the best use of their money. We don't make, you know, at the moment, the whole issue around people's capitalism, about free economies, about free trade, it's gone missing. We don't make the argument for it. People are now beginning to think that Venezuela is an answer to their problems. It's not. Venezuela is an answer to no one's problems. What is the answer to their problems is reminding that poverty globally has fallen. Why? Because of free trade, because of free markets, because of the rule of law, because of all those things that we believe in, but we make no case for that at all. And people say, oh, well, it was all capitalism's fault and everything else. We don't argue with that. We then drift in that direction ourselves. Now, James, Ian is not the only Tory MP we've heard talking in these terms. I mean, you and I will have been in several discussions of several members of the government, backbench MPs, who've got a similar complaint. We're losing the argument, we're not making an argument. What I can't work out is, if the analysis is so widely shared in the party, why isn't anybody doing anything about it? I mean, Theresa May's grip of the cabinet isn't that strong. Number 10 won't shoot down. I mean, what's stopping a cabinet member taking their own initiative in the way that seemed to happen under the coalition years? I think you are right. The cabinet has to take a lot of blame for this because they could be out there doing a lot of us stuff themselves. It's not like number 10 would be able to stop them. I mean, there is a problem, which is you've got Theresa May absorbed by Brexit and she, she doesn't do the vision thing. She's never done the vision thing. You've also got a chancellor who is a very technocratic chancellor who doesn't do the vision thing. You know, I mean, when was the last time, you know, I mean, for her birthday, Theresa May's treat is a Philip Hammond speech. Now, it's not the world's best present. But, you know, Philip Hammond is not the kind of politician who is going to give you a speech which tells you about the sunlit uplands, tells you about the kind of country he envisages. And I think part of the Tory problem is they have all been in office now for eight years and they've all started to think almost, too many of them have started to think like civil servants, not politicians. You know, that they're in charge of doing this, implementing that and also that they think that the policies speak for themselves when they don't. Ian, you've been a party leader. What does one do in these situations? I mean, let's take it for granted that the Prime Minister's time is going to be absorbed by Brexit. This is an absolutely huge job she's got to do. It will consume her. Does the leader then say, look, guys, we're in trouble. I need you to come up with ideas and go forth. I'm trying trying to work out her options here. Well, I have to tell you, there are tons of ideas. We're not short of ideas. What we're short of is determination to put them into a story and to make them happen. Now, one of the problems, of course, is we are a marginal government, which, you know, it does also affect your ability to sell ideas and get things done because you have to get them through the house and there's always two or three people that don't like what you're doing or moaning. But the key thing is, I think at the conference, Theresa May has to sell a narrative about who we are in terms of the UK. Brexit is part of that, but it's only part of that. You know, we'll all debate about what that Brexit should look like, but Brexit 
should spell out what we are in terms of our global relations. Yeah, now what we have to, to do... Exactly right. And so we have to dovetail the UK into the Brexit message. The two need to go together. We are about free trade, freedom, trading, globalisation, free markets, right? If that's our Brexit deal, then internally, what does that mean? That means continuing with real change that gives parents powers at education. It means welfare reform that gets more people back into work and, more importantly, reduces the levels of poverty because more families are back in work allows them to get better into education. Life change should be what we're about. We don't want people's lives to be static. We're not like Labour. We don't want local authorities to run that for them. We want to say, we want to give you the tools to change your lives for the better, whether it's getting control of your house, whether it's controlling your school, whether it's being able to get change the way in which you earn money. And all of that is a narrative that we set into which then the next six months is drive on that by putting policies forward that are actually implementing an agenda that follows the narrative, not the other way around. Our narrative is following bitty agendas. In our last conference, you don't remember much of it because all we remember is the cough and the things falling down on the stage. But she said that she wanted her mission to be the Prime Minister who fixed Britain's housing crisis, right? Has, has the government done anything in the last 12 months to match that ambition? Yes, the government have come up with some worthwhile initiatives on housing, but there's nothing big enough to say that you are going to be the Prime Minister who fixed the housing crisis. And I think this is one of the other problems of the government is the government is a very risk-averse government. Uh, it doesn't want to roll the dice on anything. But the danger, I think, is that the, now, I think now, the biggest risk for the Tory party is not rolling the dice. Because if you don't roll the dice, Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell are going to come in and they're going to roll the dice and you know bring the house down. And I think this is the danger, is you've got to actually, uh, as Ian says, you've got to have a vision, and but you've also got to be bold. This can't be another series of improvements at the margin, you've got to be prepared to do some big things. Ian, Bernard Law once said that if you can't change the policy, you need to change the leader. Is that really the root problem here? Well, I I am not in favour of changing the leader for two very good reasons. The first is because Brexit itself means even the possibility to do that right now is simply not... It it isn't feasible because we'd we'd bog ourselves down, we'd get into rows... We'd lose the whole Brexit debate and the whole thing will plunge and burn. So the Conservative Party's number one priority right now, because without this, we cannot then move on to the next stage. We have to get Brexit out of the way, done as soon as possible and away. That allows us then the space to build from that on this narrative that I've talked about. I do think Theresa May is capable of doing this. It's also about who's around you. I think what is required is a really strong and interesting team of people who are ideas-based. I mean, the one thing you could say for, you know, lots of things you could say, but for the Cameron years was that he wasn't averse to listening to people who knew more about stuff than he did and had real enthusiastic ideas. You know, Michael, myself and others were always pushing ideas on him and he used to get frustrated and say, I don't want to... But, you know, we'd push and push and push and finally it would become government policy and the agenda was set. But also he he had to let you do that because (coughs) it was a coalition. He was always trying to balance it. If he gave, for example, Nick Clegg power, then he needed to, for example, let's get in Dungus and give them power over welfare. So isn't it a paradox that the coalition here is we actually saw more radical conservatism than we have had since then, 2015, when the Tories won a majority? Yeah, but I don't think that should change now. I do think, as I said, yes, the bandwidth is taken up by Brexit, but we need to be planning now for the end of Brexit and for the domestic agenda. So we need to start the process of building in what are those ideas that we really want to go. You, James just talked about housing, for example. You know, building those extra houses 
so that people can move into them is a critical component of what we do. That means some really radical reform, for example, on planning permission, you know, which is, stands right in the way of an awful lot of what we're doing. If what we're talking about is the green belt, then get on with it, for God's sake. Don't mess around and wait for two years while we debate the issue. We should be putting this forward and challenging everybody to tell us why the UK uniquely stops this kind of process happening. All of these things. And one of the big areas that we did a report in the Centre for Social Justice the other day, we talked about a complete failure at the moment for years to invest in training. Now, people, their wages have been static. One of the biggest reasons why wages have been static in the UK is because British companies have utterly failed to train staff to move them on to the next level. This figure alone makes me really angry. It's that only 15% of those who start at entry-level jobs in the UK will ever move on beyond those entry-level jobs. That's the reason why people are frustrated. It's because companies have stopped investing. We are very bad at investing in technology and automation. I was talking to a Belgian company, for God's sake, the other day that was, was saying to me that they invested 20 years ago in massive automation and skills training. They had fewer people working there. Now we have many more export around the world. They beat everybody. And every time you reach your hand into the Sainsbury's or Tesco's or whatever it is, supermarket, to put a bag of something frozen out, it's theirs It's the other label. That's their success story. And when I asked him, why not Britain? He laughed. He said, you're the cheap labor economy. You don't bother to train any longer. That from someone who who loves Britain and trades with them. That's an indictment of us. What are we doing about saying... Indictment of a model of capitalism. Jeremy Corbyn would say, you're quite right. The system doesn't work and we need radical change of a system. Well, for Corbyn, you can see why that is resonating. Yes, but government itself change that. The key questions, I put this to the Chancellor the other day, what are you doing to incentivize companies now to make sure their focus is on training and automation? If that's going to be the big issue, then you can't do it, but the companies can do it. Now you have to say, here's the challenge. In Germany, uh, when they hit the crisis of the Erstmark and the Deutschmark and the unification, they pulled all the businesses together and they did this hearts reform process. What did they do? They said, we will radically cut your tax base if you invest in technology and in training. Massive investment. Some might say it was state aid, but it was through taxation. And they revolutionized the BMWs, the Mercedes. They were on their uppers at that point. Now what are they? So my point is, we've not done this. We need to do this kind of process. Government best to incentivize, but they can't run. James, chances of this or anything vaguely interesting being announced next week at Tory party conference? I think fairly low. I think I think Theresa May wants to make her immigration policy the kind of big thing of a speech. I think that what we're looking at is a situation where the Tory party's kind of view is, oh, let's just get through things. Oh, you know, oh, the budget. We'll have a budget before. We don't want the budget to get caught up with Brexit. So let, let's just let's just get it done with early. You know, but actually, at some point, the Tory party have to work backwards. They have to think that they're going to definitely be fighting election in 2022 if not before and how are you going to defeat the Jeremy Corbyn offer and that is going to require something fourth terms are very unusual for any party to win in British politics and to win a fourth term you really do have to have a vision and if you don't have a vision you will lose on that cheery note James and Ian thanks very much indeed Hello, I'm Dominic Green. I'm Life and Arts Editor of Spectator USA, and I'm inviting you to join us on the weekly Spectator USA Life and Arts podcast. This week I'm casting the pod with Sir Roger Scruton, talking philosophy, music and fiction. Look for us on iTunes under Spectator USA. One party that certainly isn't short of ideas is Labour. This week, Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell unveiled the party's economic manifesto with proposals such as legislation to ensure 10% of a big business's equity goes to the workers. 
The Shadow Chancellor also spent the summer doing damage control during Labour's anti-Semitism rows. Yet with policies no less radical than Corbyn's, just who is John McDonnell and is he more capable than Corbyn himself? I'm joined by Lewis Goodall, political correspondent for Sky News and the author of Left for Dead, The Strange Death and Rebirth of Labour Britain, and Paul Mason, journalist and Labour supporter. So Paul, you've just returned from Labour Party conference. What did we learn about John McDonnell from his speech this year? Well, I only saw him once and that was at a meeting with local government representatives and just completely off the cuff, he sort of outlined what their strategy is, which I think it's worth knowing that the important thing for that shadow treasury team is not the next budget, it's just visits to local areas where they get small businesses together and decide what needs to be done according to their own, you know, their own priorities and then try and create campaigns around it. Now, in other words, there's been this policy evolution of Labour to the left And I think at this conference, it stopped evolving. It's kind of reached where it's going to be. And they're putting a kind of hard edge on the offer and taking it quite deeply down into communities and then bolting on campaigning to the policy, which is where they want to be. Because the big worry of everybody at the conference, of course, is that if we get into power almost accidentally, if Theresa May falls or stumbles, our model, Labour's model of what you need to do to transform society is parliamentary you know, executive action combined with a movement. And we need to make sure that that movement is there. And I think John McDonnell, above all of anybody in the shadow cabinet, is somebody who not only has a handle on the deep detail of the fiscal a monetary offer, an institutional offer. Remember, we're talking about new kind, you know, changing the remit of the bank, for example. But at the same time, he's someone who spends a lot of time, because of his background in local government with the GLC, actually thinking about how this is going to work in Crewe and Nantwich or Mansfield or Newport, Gwent. So I think that, you know, in, in The Spectator this week, we've got Matthew Paris comparing him to Stafford Cripps. If anybody, I'd compare him to Wilson, not Cripps. Cripps is from another era. Wilson was a moderniser. Cripps most definitely was not a moderniser. And John is a moderniser. Lewis, do you agree that John McDonnell's a moderniser? I think certainly, look, there are certain... It's very clear that the Labour Party, something that came out of this week, it is, whatever you think about it, it is projecting and coming up with a series of ideas which are attempting to grapple with the deep social, political, economic malaise that goes beyond Brexit, that preceded Brexit, that will continue to be in the country after Brexit. And John McDonnell is a real intellectual driving force of all of that. Some of it is not especially modernising in a sense. You could say it's a bit retro. There's a deep obsession with nationalisation. They say it would be a very different sort of nationalisation nationalisation. That's possible. I'm not sure I agree with Paul that John McDonnell is most like Harold Wilson in the sense that I think Wilson was far a far less intellectual fixed abode than McDonnell. Wilson was quite crafty. He would be a bit of a chameleon. He would morph as he needed to do at different times. He initially became leader as a technically sort of on the left t- ticket. He resigned with Bevan when he needed to to try and get that intellectual kudos that he needed from through that of the party and then morphed as he was Prime Minister. McDonnell is a much more fixed, much more doctrinaire in some ways figure. He is very certain of his own intellectual beliefs of his own intellectual way of that he looks at the world but nonetheless he's also showing perhaps more than Jeremy Corbyn has done an impressive amount of flexibility so he is going over to the city he is showing reassurance he is has got this rather impressive 
almost a vancular bank manager, our bank manager routine. I saw him at an event at the Labour Party conference this week where he even basically mocked himself saying, well, I'm developing this rather soft image and all this sort of thing whilst giving a nudge and a wink to everybody who knows that perhaps there's something a little bit more steely underneath. But there's no doubt that McDonnell has emerged over the last three years as one of the most impressive figures of the Corbyn regime, the Corbyn time in the office. When his piece, Matthew says that he doesn't want to be Prime Minister, he just wants to be Chancellor. And Paul, do you agree with that? And, and if so, what do you think his first budget would look like? I know John McDonnell fairly well, and I'm pretty certain, I mean, I'm certain that he doesn't want to be leader of the Labour Party because we have one, number one, and, you know, McDonald stood, I think it was 2005, and I remember this distinctly because I rejoined the Labour Party to vote for him. And he's not somebody who could have done had that effect of that kind of Tranmere Rovers ground type of thing. Jeremy does that. And I hope that come the time when we replace Jeremy, you know, as a leader, it will be somebody equally charismatic because we are in a political period where the right, the left and the centre are all doing populism. Macron is an amazingly charismatic person. Trump is. So we... we you can't compete unless you've got somebody who is almost Marmite. No, I saw John this week say to, you know, saying to businesses, look, here are our goals. But if you're insistent that what we're trying to do won't work, we can tell you what we're trying to achieve. Please feel free to suggest other ways of achieving it. Don't feel free to suggest another outcome. But if you think the market can deliver what we think the state can, then let's talk about it. And I think that See, for me, I mean, my wing of Labour is another wing altogether. It's one very influenced by what we call horizontalist politics, by networks, by automation and post-work politics. And what I've been the most impressed with, with MacDonald and my interactions with him, is his ability, despite the fact of coming from a very traditional Labour left, far left in some senses, background, his preparedness to listen to that and think, okay, I can take this bit, I can take that bit. But no, in terms of You know, Chancellor of the Exchequer is a bloody powerful thing to be in the fifth most important country in the world when its major problem is economics. Lewis, how does he work with Corbyn? I mean, do they agree on most stuff or are there things that they violently disagree on? I think, like any two political figures, there's always going to be some disagreement. I have to say, I think that it is largely at the margins. For one reason, perhaps more than anything else, the truth is, one of the reasons that McDonnell is so crucial to the Corbyn project is that he provides the intellectual ballast on domestic and economic policy in a way that, frankly, Corbyn is not simply interested or not as interested in these issues. It's become something of a commonplace now, but I think it's nonetheless right to say that in many ways, Jeremy Corbyn would be almost right rather be Foreign Secretary in a way that MacDonald would rather be Chancellor of the Exchequer. That's one of the reasons why Corbyn has found it so difficult to extricate and remove himself from some of these allegations around anti-Semitism and around questions around Israel, because it's something that he's really, really passionate about. Someone who's less passionate about it might, and you've seen this over the course of the summer with MacDonald, who has clearly occasionally been visibly frustrated just to say, come on, let's just deal with this. I think Corbyn struggles with that because he cares about those issues so much more. MacDonald gets up in the morning, he goes to bed at night thinking about how he can transform the British economy. It's what he's wanted to do his whole career. He knows it's very close to him. It's very close within his grasp to have an opportunity to do so. And so he provides that impetus and that thinking for Jeremy Corbyn. And, so it's and very important. What exactly does he want to transform? What would be the big things that we would see change if he was to become Chancellor? Well, I think clearly he wants to shift 
the British economy in a more interventionist direction. He wants to have the British government take a more active role in not only in economic policy more generally, but in making sure that the market hasn't operated in the way that it has over the past 20 or 30 years. We've talked a little bit about the nationalisation programme that he would want to see. And more broadly speaking, he wants to see Britain become a much more egalitarian society. He wants to see less inequality. These are things that have united Labour politicians. It's the principal objective of the Labour Party in its 118-year history. But the way that he wants to go about doing it, he thinks that there's been a turning point, not only in terms of the British public and their perceptions of the economy and of politics, but also to some extent even within British business as well. We saw what Jim O'Neill said this week, astonishing in some ways, praising Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell for coming up with these rather radical ideas if there were a way to transform the British economy post-Brexit. He thinks there's an opportunity there. In a way, what Brexit has done is it's made the Conservative Party retreat from its rather more pragmatic, pro-business orientation, because it's doing something which virtually all of business thinks is a bad idea and has embraced that. In tw- before 2015, the great thing that David Cameron and George Osborne managed to do, or the ingenious thing, is that it managed to essentially reduce all of politics to a very, very narrow set of confines. If De- Ed Miliband had wanted to buy a new pair of neck curtains for Downing Street at cost of 50 quid, they would have denounced it as communism and said Britain was about to lose its credit rating. Brexit, because it's in a way, is its own impossibilist fantasy, if you like, because it's this huge thing that disrupts all of politics. It allows the other side to also have their own particularly big vision and also say that, you know what, you told us loads of things weren't possible. Well, it turns out if Brexit's possible, then lots of other things could be possible too. So it's opened up this huge political and economic space that John McDonnell can try and capitalise on and try and occupy. We should talk about Brexit for a little bit. I mean, do you get the sense, Paul, that Corbyn and McDonnell are quite pro-Brexit because they like the idea of being free from the EU to bring in these quite radical changes? Whatever they thought before Brexit and before they became powerful politicians almost doesn't matter. The fact is, the thing that makes them accept Brexit is not what you might call their Benite hinterland, going right back to the 70s, of being suspicious of the neoliberal project of Brexit. What it is, is seeing, you know, I was in Newport, uh, Newport Gwent, last month. There's been, according to Hope Not Hate, this so-called MRP polling, deep polling, a 9% swing Okay, from leave to remain in a town like Newport, there's still a 52% majority for leave. And that's our heartland. And if you talk to Caroline Flint, if you talk to many Labour MPs north of Watford, they say, look, our constituencies, against our advice, voted for this. They want it to happen. And we will not become the party of stealing it from them on behalf of an urban elite. Even though we quite like it to end, we can't be that. I can't emphasise enough, it is that and not any residual sort of hostility to, to the European Union, which of course is there, that is the primary driver. And I think that's why... You know, there's two things went on at conference. There was a formal democratic process. And I know horse trading doesn't look democratic, but it has that five-hour meeting was elected delegates with mandates. And they gave them up one by one under pressure from various people, one of whom was Corbyn. But at another level, you saw vociferous Labour MPs from South Wales, from North of England, from Essex, saying, you know, do not become the party of Remain. You can't do it. And I think the, there's a two layers of discussion going on. This, the outcome is the same. And it was what Corbyn said in his speech. We're gonna, if, if Theresa May does a, a Brexit we can live with, we'll help it through the Commons. If she can't, she needs to step down. And I think, I think most people, including me, who's slightly critical of Corbyn on Brexit, from a sort of more people's vote type perspective, I'm happy because 
as a member of a, what is it, 540,000 strong party with several million trade unionists attached to it, I have to live with what I can take people through. This focus on local areas, I mean, is that coming from McDonnell rather than Corbyn? Yes. Well, it's very interesting that McDonnell has spent the summer, whilst obviously so much attention has been on the anti-Semitism allegations, McDonnell has nonetheless been spending the summer going to places like Hastings, going to places like Broxtow, going to smaller towns. I thought I thought was really interesting in Corbyn's speech yesterday, and in, particularly in the party political broadcast, which followed it, very good party political broadcast, was this focus on small towns, places like Newport was... Paul was saying, because I think there is absolute awareness, as well there should be, that the 2017 election result, as momentous as it was and surprising as it was, Labour was still losing ground, and in the local elections in 2018 we've also seen this trend continuing, Labour losing ground in less formally educated, older, whiter places, places like Warsaw, all these places like Mansfield, places the Labour Party need to win back, and not just win back those seats like Mansfield and Warsaw, they lost in 2017, but also all of these other, you know, Labour need over 60 seats to get a majority of one. The terrain of the next general election is not going to be the same terrain as 2017. Yes, Labour must bank what it has, seats like Warwick and Canterbury and all these places that are more educated, more cosmopolitan, more Romanian, and all these sort of places, but they've got to win seats in places like Southampton, they've got to keep seats like Bishop Auckland, they've got to really try and advance, and those places and those people are different. So I think it's, from a Labour point of view, clearly there's got to be more advance in these places. And it was interesting that Corbyn, although there were a lot of briefing had been about the rather highfalutin things about capitalism and about greed and all of this sort of things. The most interesting thing for me was a lot of the bread and butter policies around childcare, around assurances to pensioners over the triple lock, and a narrative that was actually in many ways more grounded that presumably is designed to appeal to exactly those sort of places. The 2017 election taught Labour activists, including myself, that the fiscal activism, let's call it that, the fiscal stimulus, the tax and spend, was popular on the street corner before they'd even published it, when the leak came out. We had experience of people coming out of their houses who were UKIP, what you might call figures, UKIP figures in a local estate, and saying, I'm back in. All I needed was to see that you care about us. That's it. Brexit's over anyway. But the, the badge, the entry, the entry ticket was, we're doing Brexit. No. That's where we were in 2017. But I remember vividly campaigning in Broxtow, which is Anna Subri's seat, and, and a left Labour candidate there, a Corbynite candidate. And we were talking about infrastructure. All this tax will allow us to build some infrastructure. And, and they said, look, we've got a motorway runs right through the constituency. Our problem is there's only one junction, is that the motorway is useless to us for getting anywhere except out of Broxtow. And the place is a microcosm. The north of Broxtow as a constituency, it's a long constituency, is old mining villages where there's been UKIP, there's been the National Front in the 70s and a very strong Labour left tradition. The South is a leafy suburb of Nottingham University. It's Britain in microcosm. No, we learned quite quickly that offering lots of tax and spend and your kid goes to university for free and all the rest of it doesn't necessarily work in those mining villages. And what people were wanting to talk about wasn't Brexit either. It was why is the pothole right outside my door not been fixed? Very salutary if you're kind of if you're coming from this left socialist, the world transformed, 2011 student movement to be told the most important thing in my life is the pothole outside my door. Fill it. So we've got to fill it. That's what localism is. Just finally, I mean, do either of you think there's stuff that the Tories can do to counteract John McDonald's ideas? 
Well, I mean, the Conservative Party is really split on this issue. Some people, like Robert Halfen, think that the Conservative Party need to come up with a bigger intellectual vision that, in to some extent, incorporates the idea of a more activist state, but does it in a more conservative way that it tries to juxtapose with the what they would say is the phantom radicalism of Macdonald because it isn't possible. Others say that they need to stick to Thatcher, proper free markets, Thatcherism. They need to reinvent that for the 21st century the Conservative Party can't be cowed, it has to stick to its intellectual guns. I think you're going to see that debate really writ large next week. Underneath all of the Brexit froth, which will be everywhere, and Boris Johnson will be touring the place, causing trouble here uh, where he can. Underneath that, there is a battle that's going on for the soul of the Conservative Party. But bear in mind as well that the Conservative Party itself is changing. The Conservative Party membership and grassroots is changing. I went up to Leicestershire not long ago. You could see meet lots and lots of people there who used to be part of UKIP. The local Conservative MP there, Andrew Bridgen is welcoming with open arms because they have an eye on the next Conservative leadership election and they want to make sure that whatever happens with Brexit and whatever happens in the future, that the Conservative Party itself has changed enough in the grassroots that would mean that someone like Jeremy Hunt, certainly someone like Ruth Davidson, Amber Rudd, that they wouldn't have a chance um, with the membership. And that's bigger than Brexit. They said to me that this is not just about Brexit because they think, ultimately, they think Brexit will happen anyway. It's about social conservatism. It's about a change to a return, as they put it, to traditional values, traditional conservatism. So one way or another, we're seeing that both ends of the political spectrum are moving away from each other. And so the Conservative Party itself, potentially, whatever happens with Brexit, is going to be a very, very different beast. So I think that the main challenge for conservatism across the world is whether it's going to go with the Trump, Bannon, alt-right revolution. Look at Sebastian Kurz in Austria. One minute he's in coalition with the socialists, the next minute he's in coalition with a party that is is far right, I'm sorry. No, I think that does confront the Conservative Party. It's, it's much more acute problem than the split in the Labour Party. I hope the Conservatives do not opt for that because my hunch is it doesn't work in Britain. We don't have a large evangelical Christian movement. And the evangelical Christians, you know, half of whom now think that if, if Brett Kavanaugh is convicted of sexual assault, should be still become a member of the Supreme Court. Thank goodness we don't have that kind of Christianity in this country, or not in large numbers. No. Therefore, the Trump project in this country is only possible with plebeian racism. That is of the kind that we see in some of these towns that have had large UKIP and before that BNP votes. So if I cannot believe that even people I would criticise, like, like Amber Rudd, like Jeremy Hunt, like Michael Gove, could stay in a party that became that. But there are things that they could do. And as you know, this is almost the thing that I say in all interviews, but the neoliberal system, the free market system, is broken. Trumpism is its reinvention at a national level. That's what the ERG want. Thatcherism in one country. If you want to be part of a global multilateral system, you must reinvent the whole system. It doesn't matter how much distributionally it, de it delivers. You can have a dry version and a wet version. But you really must say, where does growth come from? Where does wealth and prosperity come from? From the people you want to deliver it to. Because I think you know, ultimately, those patrician, well-meaning liberal Tories, what they always think they're going to do is cascade wealth down to a grateful bunch of poor people. That's where we labour, you know, that's our, our cultural difference from. We, do, we hate that idea. But insofar as they, that's a, a virtuous idea to do, the wealth has to be there to cascade. And where is it coming from? That's the question they have to answer. Thank you, Lewis, and thank you, Paul. 
Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I present the weekly books podcast at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store. And lastly, is Tesco's new discount retailer a reaction to Brexit? Throughout Jack's, its new shop, there are Union Jacks everywhere, and all the products are meant to be from Britain. But is patriotism really a viable strategy for retailers? Olivia Potts argues in this week's magazine that it may not be, and she joins me now. So, Olivia, can you start by telling us what exactly Jack's is? Okay, so Jack's is a new store initiative from Tesco's. They're rolling it out uh, over the next six months across 10 to 15 different premises, and it is their new budget store. So there'll be a much smaller range of products. The vast majority of them, over 70%, will be own brand. And it will be a cheaper brand than you'll find in normal Tesco stores, and it will only be available in Jack's. And do we have a sense as to why they've launched this now? Well, it it depends whether you take what they say on face value or not. The CEO, Dave Lewis, in launching Jax, has said that it is what the people want and that it is not a response to Brexit. But the drum that they are banging is is a British one, and that over 80% of Jax products will be British sourced or produced. And there is a real feeling of British pride and, and sourcing there. So perhaps it is more of a response to the political climate at the moment than they are willing to admit. How sustainable do you think that model is of just having British food in a British supermarket? Well, having British food in a British supermarket is not massively sustainable, but it is still more sustainable than what they're trying to do. So at the moment, Britain is not food self-sufficient. It produces about 60% of its food needs. That is likely to fall with Brexit unless some miracle happens. But what is trickier for Jacks is combining that sourcing with their budget brand. Because as we leave the EU, the subsidies that farmers and other producers have been able to take advantage of will mostly fall away and produce will become significantly more expensive for both the stores and the consumer. So it seems tricky to me for Jacks to be able to have their cake and eat it when it comes to both British sourcing and low prices. You also talk in your piece about one of the reasons why Jack's has been set up is to compete with Lidl and Aldi, who are the kind of continental cheaper stores. I mean, how are they able to source such cheap food? They don't limit themselves to British sourcing. Although some of their food is British sourced, they have a much more European-wide view on it. That's really the main reason, to be honest, that they're able to do that. The Jacks have followed the model of Aldi and Lidl in that they're going to have fewer staff on the floor, they're going to have much more basic infrastructure and interiors. But really the, the main problem is where it's sourced from, and that's where Aldi and Lidl will differ from Jacks. I mean, your piece opens up an interesting discussion about what food will be like after Brexit. And mm. this seems to be something people are becoming perhaps more aware of right now. I mean, do you think our diets are going to change dramatically once we leave? Or is that just sort of fear-mongering from the Remain side? I don't think it's fear-mongering. I think we will have a choice of whether our diets change or whether our budgets for food shopping change. And unfortunately, we we live in a country where so many families fall below the poverty line and the uptake of food banks is higher than ever. So for many, that may not be a choice. But I, I struggle to see how we will be able to have in our stores what we do now at the same prices, given either European tariffs and, and taxes once we leave the EU, 
or the fact that those producing supplies in our own country simply will have much, much tighter margins. And just finally, I mean, obviously Jax is trying to be a sort of patriotic shopping experience. Do you think people do shop patriotically or do people just buy the cheapest option? The latest YouGov poll seems to suggest that people would prefer, on the whole, to buy British in Britain, but only if it's not more expensive than than other options, which is a little bit of a fudge, I think, as far as answers go, and, and certainly one that Jax is trying to capitalise on. But I can't help but feel that it's a bit short-sighted and that their prices aren't sustainable. Thank you, Livy. And that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do let us know on the iTunes store. You can subscribe, rate and review it. And we always like to hear from you. And just a reminder that the Spectator podcast is moving home. Just search for Spectator podcast to subscribe to the new channel. Or even better, stick with us here on this channel, which is being rebranded as Spectator Radio, where we'll be bringing you the best of the Spectator's podcast daily, where we talk about politics, literature, religion and much more. And do pick up this week's issue to read all of the pieces discussed, as well as more from Prue Leith, Jesse Norman and the Spectator's Tom Goodenough. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. Mm-hmm.